Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum Radio Show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus did. A few weeks ago, I talked about the part of the introduction where I say bought and paid for bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I talked about those words bought and paid for in the context of being a bondservant. Last week, I talked about the part of the introduction where I say how we try and answer questions the same way Jesus did. And we talked about how important it is to have a biblical worldview and to approach questions consistently and logically and to look for falsehoods and contradictions. This week, I want to spend a few minutes on the phrase, our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions. See, we don't want to just give you the answers. We want to make you think. There's a very popular proverb. I think it's an ancient Chinese proverb that's a little overused, but it's so appropriate for today's discussion. And that is, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to teach you to fish. Now, there's nothing wrong with apologetics ministries that answer questions. They're fantastic. They're very helpful. My favorite one, by the way, is gotquestions.org. I'll put a link on our website attached to this episode. God bless them for their ministry. They do a great job. It's a great resource, and I often send people there all the time because I think they share the same view of the Bible that we at the Ambassadors Forum do, that the Bible is absolutely true, that the Bible is sufficient, that it's infallible, that it's inerrant, etc., etc., etc. So their answers are always solid biblical answers, and they also include links to additional resources. Now, just like with anything, I may not always agree 100% with their answers, I probably don't agree 100% with my answers, but they are solid, well-thought-out, biblically-based. Now, I certainly don't need to try and do the same things they do. If you go to their website, they say that they have answered 646,000 questions so far. <laughs> that's incredible. But that's not our purpose here at the Ambassadors Forum. We want to try and equip you to think clearly so that you can defend your faith in the moment by thinking through things yourself. Now, it's always great to have a resource like gotquestions.org, but we want to give you the confidence not just knowing what you believe, but why you believe it. And that often requires thinking things through yourself and struggling with things and wrestling with things. Sometimes I think our Western method of education doesn't leverage the, the creativity and skill and resources of the learner or student as much as it could. Sometimes it's good to let people struggle, let people flounder a bit and try and find their way with their own efforts and their own energy and their own inspiration. Let me give you three completely different examples of what I've seen this look like done well. The first one is in... African villages. So my brother was in the Peace Corps in Zambia, 
many years ago, and I went to visit him, and so we spent some time uh, in the Zambian bush. It was fascinating. We would come to these villages, just one dirt road in, one dirt road out, no technology, no anything, just very, very primitive lifestyles. And there would be dumps where there would, you know, people discard old things, you know, maybe a, a ruined car or whatever. And they just these huge dump sites, accumulation of years and decades of of stuff, usually from Western civilizations who had gone there, tried to help, failed, and then they had all this junk left over, so they threw it in a pile. Anyway, what the kids would do in these villages is they would go into these dump sites and they would retrieve pieces from things that were discarded and they would come up with the most fascinating inventions that I've ever seen. One of them, I remember, was this truck, like an 18-wheeler truck with a cab and a trailer, and it was all made out of discarded wire that the child had kind of rewoven and bent around, and it was fascinating. It had a long handle, and you could actually run behind it and steer it, it had steering linkages, it had U-joints, it had working lights somehow. All of this was built out of scrap metal that they found in the dump. A second example is when I visited Israel, they had what they called Chatzar Grutot, which is Hebrew for a junkyard. In the kibbutzim in Israel, they're kind of like a community, these little communities where everybody worked together and shared the the resources and the labor. And so they would have their own version of a junk heap. And the kids would go there and they would pull out of the junk heap and they would play with things and invent things and, again, stimulate their imagination. I found this statistic very fascinating. Only about 4% of Israel's population is raised on kibbutzim, but about 30% of the fighter pilots come from that population. It's a huge discrepancy. And why is that? Because these children had to think of ways to be creative and innovative and resourceful with the things that they had. There were, you know, dead cars, washing machines, tires, etc. It helped the kids' hand-eye coordination. It helped them be resourceful and innovative. And I think in the end, it produced sharper minds. And then the third example is from my own kids on our property where we live today. There's a pond, there's acres of woods, there's frogs and snakes and mud and just a huge outdoor environment. The kids had lots of playmates about their same age, and they came up with the most creative, inventive stories and games, and it was just amazing. And they would make things out of rocks and sticks and leaves. It was another fascinating example of what kids can do when you don't prepackage the information for them, but you just give them a few building blocks and let them create the narrative. So it's the same way with the ambassadors form. We try and equip you with a few simple skills like carefully identifying what presuppositions that you start with, like logically thinking through things and looking, being very aware of contradictions, internal contradictions along the way. And then third, also making sure that your ideas and principles are founded on the Bible, are anchored in Bible verses that you can tie back to. But then once you've got those key ingredients, it's up to you to go off and figure out how to answer the question and how to think things through. What this does is it equips you and gives you a methodology 
for answering any question that you come up against, not just a pre-canned one that you've found on the internet, even though there might be 646,000 of them on gotquestions.org, but you might come up with that one that they haven't even seen yet. So hopefully that helps you understand our approach and what we're trying to accomplish. All right, well, let's put this into practice by answering some of the questions from our website. The first one is this. Why did God create us just to glorify and worship him? Isn't that kind of narcissistic on God's part? That's a good question. And first, a caveat. Any question that starts with, why did God, is always very challenging. It requires us to know the mind of God. And the Bible says we will never fully know the mind of God, except where he has specifically revealed it to us. As an example, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So we need to be careful. In fact, a lot of apologists explicitly refuse to answer these kinds of questions because of the inherent uncertainty of the answer. However, we're going to go against our better judgment and attempt to speculate on this one. (laughs) Remember, the first step is, are there any presuppositions embedded in the question? Well, did God create us just to glorify and worship him? How would we answer that question? It's always helpful with these kinds of questions to go first to the Bible and not start with a complicated philosophical model. A lot of people make that mistake. So what do we know about God? Well, the Bible tells us that God is motivated by love and by relationship. Even his very nature in the Trinity is an illustration of this. We also know that God has a sovereign plan for the entire scope of creation. He knew that we humans would reject his perfect love, that we would rebel against him, and he chose a path of personal sacrifice and suffering to redeem us back to himself. We know this because of passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, it is the gift of God. Why did God give us that gift of salvation? Because of his great love for us. So no, I don't think that the Bible says that God's primary motivation in creating us was just so that we would glorify and worship him. I think Ephesians says that his primary motivation was a loving relationship with us. Now, are we supposed to glorify and worship him? Of course. But that has more to do with who he is, which is majestic, and who we are in relation to him, which is just humble servants. Hopefully that's clear. Now let's address the narcissistic part. 
<laughs> we always need to, again, be cautious using human characteristics to try and describe God because he's a very different being than us. In the dictionary, narcissistic is defined as having an exaggerated sense of self-importance. But how can we apply that to God? Because he really is all-important. It can't be excessive. Let me try an analogy here, and all analogies break down, but let me give it a shot. Think of a mother and her baby. Babies are totally dependent on their mothers for food, for transportation, for protection, for everything. Mothers really are all important to their babies. And a baby rightly adores their mom and thinks the world of them. Now, would anybody ever call a nurturing mother someone who's motivated by the purest love to care for her child narcissistic because she's so important to her baby? I don't think so. So to directly answer the question, no, I don't think it's narcissistic on God's part. Hopefully this helps put things in the right perspective. It is so important that we logically think through these kinds of questions in an orderly manner. And we lay a correct foundation in our understanding of God, which we can know from the Bible. And in this case, it is that he is motivated by a selfless love in its purest and best form of goodness that we can possibly imagine. From there, it's totally reasonable that we would glorify and worship him for who he is, which is an amazing redeemer who calls us his children. Let's move on to a second question from our website. What is a good response to someone who says, aren't guilt, truth, morals, and beauty all just social constructs? That is a good question. Now let's think through this carefully. Number one, it's a question of a question. They're not asking the question, aren't guilt, truth, morals, and beauty all just social constructs? They're saying, what's a good response to someone who says... So the simple answer to the question is, you walk them through whether they've made good assumptions and help them think through critically and logically their own question. That's the answer. Now, if I was asked this question, aren't guilt, truth, morals, and beauty all just social constructs? The first thing that I would say is, before I even got to any specifics, I would say, let's be careful because what you're doing is you're lumping all these things together. You're lumping guilt, truth, morals, and beauty as a unit and saying, aren't all of these just social constructs? I wouldn't try and answer it as a lumped group because you don't know if that was a correct assumption or not. So you break it down into one by one by one. So let's start with truth. (laughs) Are they saying that truth itself is a social construct? Are they saying that nothing is actually true, that reality doesn't really exist? So here's an example. Did I just ask the question of whether reality doesn't really exist? Uh, Yeah, it's obvious. Well, wait a minute. Can I prove it? (laughs) Well, maybe since we're recording this radio show, I can. But in general, can we prove those kinds of things? Maybe not. Does that mean that it wasn't real? No, of course not. The problem is that in our current society, people are being trapped by absurdity. They are asking very philosophical questions that are impossible to answer according to their own imposed preconditions. They're challenging whether reality is even reality, whether anything is even real. This philosophy is sometimes called relativism, 
And it just doesn't hold up to an honest and rigorous and intellectual analysis. Here's a simple statement that someone would try and make in a, from a relativistic worldview. There is no absolute truth. But wait a minute. Is that statement absolutely true? You can just see this kind of thinking quickly wraps you up in intellectual knots that you can't emerge from because you're trying to assert such foundational premises before you can even have a discussion about the question and answer. Now, to be clear, you can often just do a reality check here, no pun intended. Does anybody actually live like they're talking? No, no one actually lives like they believe that there's no absolute truth. In their daily lives, they know that things like gravity and magnetics and electricity are observable realities. They know that people are there. And even though everyone lives like there is absolute truth, Christians actually have an intellectual justification for the existence of that truth. Here's how God defines it in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So Paul doesn't engage them in their absurdity. He says, look, everybody knows that reality is real, that we really do exist. And when people try and sound smart by asking these intellectual riddles, he's like, you know what? This is ridiculous. You know the truth. In fact, you suppress the truth. Now, that is a bold statement that Paul is making here. What he's saying is people know the truth, but sometimes they suppress the truth. And it may be subconsciously, but what they're doing is they are denying what they know to be true. And he says, claiming to be wise, they're fools. So is truth a social construct? No, of course not. Now let's consider the next one, morals. Morals are a measure of our behavior against the standard. So are morals a construct? Yeah. A social construct? I guess it depends on what you mean by social. Most people think of morals as right and wrong, not just different. It really comes down to what you define as that standard. So in a way, I guess morals could be a kind of social construct. But if the standard is just people's opinions, adherence to that standard it really isn't very compelling. But if that standard is God and the Bible, it's a higher authority than just people's opinions, then it's not a social construct. It is a standard from God. And as for guilt, it's just a subset of morality. When you know your behavior doesn't meet the moral standard, you feel bad. You feel guilty. Now, Christians have a clear standard for this moral and guilt, which is the Bible. So if you think about it, our guilt, our violation of God's law, is actually an excellent evidence of the truth of God and the Bible written in our hearts. Romans chapter 2 says it this way, Even Gentiles, who don't have God's written law, show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it 
even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they're doing right. I've said on this radio show before that one of the strongest evidences of the existence of God is creation and our conscience. And we talked about those two things there in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Finally, let's look at that last one, beauty. Different cultures consider different things to be beautiful. So I would venture that, yeah, beauty, unlike these other words, could probably be considered a social construct. But if we think a little deeper than that, and we consider why something is beautiful, or why it matters, I think you arrive at something much more meaningful. As Christians, we believe that God created the world to be beautiful, and for humans to be able to recognize that beauty as a transcendent quality. That is, it's more incredible and profound and meaningful than just a set of physical properties. And that recognition of beauty is meant to point us to God. Let's go to another question from our website. Ontological? Teleological? What do those words even mean? Well, those two words are different types of philosophical arguments for the existence of God. A simple Google search will reveal things like a cosmological argument, a teleological argument, an ontological argument, a moral argument, a transcendental argument, a presuppositional argument. You bring up a good point that we really need to remember, and that is apologetics can often involve the discussion of complex subjects. And when this work is undertaken by the intellectual community, in other words, those with advanced degrees or those who make a living writing books and giving lectures, sometimes they can produce some confusing terms. Now, this isn't necessarily bad. It can sometimes be useful in summarizing volumes of discourse into an abbreviated form in certain realms of academia, but it can also be dangerous. It can give the impression that, well, if you don't understand these words, then you're not smart enough to participate in the discussion. That's just not true. So to get back to answering today's specific question, ontological simply means the study of being or existence. The ontological argument for the existence of God is pretty complicated, but in its simplest form, it says, if we define God as the highest form of being that we can imagine, well, then he must exist by definition. That's pretty much it. Now, one of the problems with this argument is that it relies on human reason as the ultimate authority without justifying that position. I don't find it to be a very compelling approach. The second word, teleological, means the study of the end of something or or something's purpose. The teleological argument for the existence of God is also complicated. But again, in its simplest form, it says that since the universe seems to have been designed for a specific purpose, that is, supporting human life, then it must have been designed by God. Now, one of the problems with this argument is that it equates the high statistical probability of something as irrefutable proof. So I don't find it a very compelling approach either. Unfortunately, with a lot of these philosophical arguments, is that at the end of the day, they don't really accomplish what they intend to. At best, they become a clever philosophical justification for a kind of a higher power. But that higher power isn't specified as the God of the Bible. 
therefore the main task in apologetics of proving that God exists or that the Bible is true and that all of mankind is sinful and in need of salvation, that main task still remains. So while these arguments can be an interesting thought experiment, they can really be alienating because of their terminology and maybe not very effective for most everyday conversations between friends and family. Well, I hope those answers have been helpful. And I hope you were able to see some of those principles that I talked about at the beginning of the episode put into practice. As a reminder, number one, always carefully identify the presuppositions that you're starting with. Number two, always think logically and consistently and keep an eye out for internal contradictions and reject those as falsehoods. And number three, always go to the Bible. And most importantly, keep asking questions. God has revealed the truth to us in his word, and he's given us his Holy Spirit as a guide to help us find that truth. And as always, the Ambassadors Forum is here to help you. Go to our website at theambassadorsforum.com. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.